if you had to capture how you feel about the current state of retail in one word, what would that be? Panic. My name is Yaniv Koren. I'm here to study successful innovation professionals and uncover the mindset and models they use to derest the future. On this podcast, I invite fellow professors, practitioners, and entrepreneurs to have an honest conversation about the business of innovation. No more bullshit. We talk openly and honestly about what works and what doesn't. So come on, get your ass in that seat. School's about to start. Hey, Carl. Welcome to the School of Innovation. It's always good to be back in school, Yaniv. I want to get right into it and kind of warm up with this question. Uh, It might be challenging, but let's let's see how it goes. Are are you up for it? I'm always up for a challenge, Yaniv, especially coming from you. I know it's going to be a good one. (laughs) That's why I'm here. Now now I'm a little worried because maybe I've set expectations a little bit too high, but um, let's give it a try. So... Here's my question. If you had to capture how you feel about the current state of retail in one word, what would that be? Panic. Okay, good one. <laughs> All right, now, now explain why panic. Well, listen, I mean, there's a, it's, it's, it's a complicated answer. As you know, there's a lot of factors that they're creating the panic, but it's just, I think... We're in the we're in the unforeseen, right? As much as people like to say, no, no, this isn't a black swan event. It's something that we knew was coming. You know, we should have been better prepared for it. The reality is, eighty percent of our existence in retail is based on the ability for uh, people to want to purchase something, have easy access to it, and uh, and and that eighty percent I'm referring to is obviously physical retail. And yes, we were all. Uh, you know, finding our way towards a more some more digital formats, but the reality was is we were still very very dependent on 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 physical distribution in from stores. And when that all gets shut down, or you know the vast majority of it, especially anything that has that's remotely non-essential, um, gets shut down, then it just it, it creates panic. I mean, it 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 sets off waves, economic waves, uh, you know, that that just are are, I won't say uh, irreparable, but it's going to be it's going it's going to be tough because we're not we're not done yet. We're you think we're as, to use the baseball analogy from from you know the, these parts. It's hopefully out of the first inning, but I still I think we still have many innings to go. But I think the the fact that you said panic that that's kind of surprising to me because it in some way it's a bit hopeful I think because I was I was thinking you're gonna say like fucked screwed like you know a, a lot more I guess um, terminal <laughs> I'm an I'm an optimist yeah, yeah I'm an optimist panic <laughs> but, but, panic probably is the, the step the, the step just before fucked and screwed I guess is. is, is <laughs> panic is but, but it's not there yet but no i mean it's not there yet no it, so so here's the thing and even I mean, this is maybe a cultural reference and i don't know how it translates uh you know into different parts sometimes but what why the, the word panic is is especially important in this moment is retailers have historically been nothing nothing but panic They've always been very cool. I mean, their business could be sinking like a, like the Titanic, and you'd be asking them as they're playing the violin on, on, on you know, in 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 the uh, 
in the bar room of, of the Titanic, how is it going? And it'd be like, yeah, it's not bad. Everything's okay. You know, we're, we'll, we'll be fine. That's tech. That's always been sort of the, the resilience of the retail sector. And, and it still is in a lot of cases, but, but there is, uh, there is a sense, you know, you're feeling it more and more that some retail leaders are, are, I won't say, I think panic is maybe a strong word, especially for the ones that represent shareholders and have to show that they have some, some, some notion of control. But the reality is there, um, you know, there is, there's this high level of uncertainty because let's face it, much of retail right now is so dependent on government's goodwill to support them and, 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 and banks and, and whatever institutions you want to think of. So it's not a good position to be in. Do you think we're going to see something like the 2008 crisis where the government swoops in and saves retail, like they saved the banks? See, saving the banks was pretty easy in this, in, in, you know, when you look at it in terms of scale, because they didn't have to spread it so wide. So they're already trying. I mean, you know, they're putting you know, a, lot, a lot of stop gaps in, in place and trying to, you know, any any measure that puts money into a consumer's hand right now is in some ways saving retail, right? It's giving them, still giving them some spending, um, some, some, some in, hopefully discretionary income. But uh, for how long is that going to last? And obviously it depends what part of the world you're in to what level I'm in Canada. So we're we're pretty fortunate that we have a government uh, that's you know doing its utmost, which who knows for how many decades we'll be paying for that. But at least a short term, it's 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 create you know creating some some measures of, of relief. But that's not getting spread spread evenly. You know that the the it's not all the retailers that are benefiting from that. So um, is it the same? I mean, it's, I think everybody's trying. I mean, it's it's way way broader because again, the, the financial collapse, the Lehman Brothers story is uh, is one that was pretty you know containable. Uh, the retail one, the containment is 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 just so much further reaching in terms of uh, commercial real estate, supply chain, um, logistics. You know that support the supply chain. The 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 the, the fact that it's often in, in in most parts of the world, if not the top employer in the top three. Um, so, you know, and and the Lehman Brothers, uh, the the Great Recession analogy is interesting because I've been talking, you know. Last, I guess, I'm going on three months now. But what I've called the, or coined the Great Acceleration, in the context of having had here in North America the Great Depression that provokes so much change, and then you know 2008, the Great Recession that you just referred to, and I, I'm seeing this one as the Great Acceleration for the reason that um, everything we're seeing, we're witnessing right now, these collapses and whatnot, are all things that were sort of going to come, but in, in a much more uh, measured and drawn out way. So these these store closures, these realignments of supply chain, uh, some you know some you know, refocus on on digital capabilities. These were all in the works, but they were going to happen in the next three to five years, not in the next three to five months. So that's why I'm thinking as we're going to look back on this on this crisis, we're going to see that this was. Uh, uh, you know, maybe we're going to think of it as the great acceleration or the great accelerator. And, and that's why I, you know, I do the term panic, as you put it, is, is maybe hopeful because it just sort of provokes changes that needed to happen. Uh, and, you know, a crisis is obviously the, you know, the biggest catalyst of change. In, in that regards, what, you know, how would you, how would you pave the way out? Like, how would you say or recommend that they 
you know? So my template right now, the playbook that I'm, I'm looking to push forward and I'm, I'm developing as everybody as we're going along, but I, I've become really fascinated by the notion of resilience. You know, what builds resilience in an organization? And, and, and maybe just because I'm from my nature and my background, I try to try to work a lot on, on, on balance. And uh, maybe it's my, my bilingual uh, heritage of being brought up in two languages at the same time and trying to always find sort of that, that equilibrium. But it's, it's, I think we're, you know, I, I, as part of this great acceleration, I think we're headed towards that 50-50 blur, you know, where physical and digital sort of intersect and that half our business is done, you know, through predominantly digital channels and half of it will be done through predominantly physical, but there will be a lot of overlap as, as you won't be able to, to discern sort of they'll intertwine. The two worlds will intertwine more and more. And for me, that's, that's how you build resilience. I don't think you want to be a hundred percent dependent on digital either. Like there could be catastrophes around that that could happen as well. And so, so to know that your, uh, your muscle, your left arm and your right arm are equally strong I think is sort of the way you want to be working out right now and making sure or that your upper and lower body have, yeah, have, you know, equal, equal strength. So that when the one's called upon more than the other, that you, you feel comfortable to be able to, to, to work through it. So right now, obviously our, our digital body in much of retail wasn't worked out enough, you know, our, our, and it's not just on the retailer, by the way. I mean, the retailer is dependent on a bunch of other uh, partners in the ecosystem to do that too, from payment to, um, you know, to, to, to the delivery. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of players that have to, that have to up their game as well too, not just the retailers, but, you know, cause it's not just an e-commerce thing. It's not like, well, we're not, e our e-commerce wasn't, you know, strong enough. Our, our, our platform wasn't strong enough. No, what the challenges usually are happening in the warehouse and are happening in, 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 in the, with the delivery trucks, uh, as much as they're happening anywhere else. So, so this resilience, that's, that's for me, the playbook is, head as quickly as you can to a business model where you're planning on doing half your business online and half of your business. And you know how it's going to play out. It might be 60-40, it might be 65-35, but I think if you aim sort of just ideologically for that 50-50, I think you're in a better position and more your organization is going to be more resilient because of it. In the context of Innovation Labs, because that's how we met. We met around, I was working at Explorium in Shanghai, which is the uh, Fun Group's uh, Retail Innovation Lab, and you are now an advisor, right, to uh, to a retail lab at McGill University in Canada. So, so what's interesting that's happening at the lab at McGill, like in that context? Well, unfortunately, not much is happening in terms of of, of open and you know they, they they because of this crisis, uh, you know, we we were hoping to be open in May, and now we're now you know the timelines keep getting corrected for simple reasons like just travel bans that have made it hard for some of the equipment we need and the people we need to get here so we're, we have contingencies for that right now and honestly the, the campus is closed so we don't even really have technically have access to the buildings so these are all so they're all campus but okay let's let's go you know the, the premise will be it'll be a gym for uh for probably you know one major retail partner that you know and a bunch of technology partners and Obviously, the whole ecosystem will you know it will see how that manifests. So it will there will be repercussions uh, for for those those immediate partners and 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 obviously the academics. They're going to want to publish 
uh, uh, their findings around this. And in this, the first iteration, which will be, you know, when you're when you're working in academic horizons, it's not the same cycles as what you would have gone through at uh, Explorium. So it's you know two to three year cycles, just because that tends to be the cycle to publish as well. Which in, you know coming out of this crisis will be interesting to see if that's still the case, because that's you know everything time is compressing, but. Anyway, it's it's a long term commitment, and uh, in between the partners, and we will be uh, working with the, a, a, a convenience in a convenience format. So, we'll exploring sort of the future, what the future of convenience can look like, and uh, and then all the uh, sort of all the analytics that can go along with that, and the, you know the, the the technologies and and the experimentation. So, much more inspired by concepts like this is story. Or even your explorium, uh, you know, inspired me a lot into short, short iterative cycles, uh, which some of the experiments could play that way for sure. But I mean, the overall um, uh, dynamic of the space will be longer, longer horizon that, that will allow the, the, the academics to get the volume of, uh, you know, of, of data or, or, or behaviors or whatever that they're going to need to truly, you know, uh, conduct proper, uh, you know, world class research. Right. Right. So let's, uh, I want to explore that a little bit further um, because I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've done a lot of research on innovation labs. You've visited a lot of innovation labs across the world. I am curious about, you know, what you saw, what you learned. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, uh, well, I think the first thing I learned is that it, it's a lot harder than it seems, uh, especially to try to, uh, try to, um, bring together various stakeholders. And now in an era of, uh, where, you know, we're rightfully uh, putting a lot of attention on things like data privacy and how it's managed, the stakeholders that become, that becomes now probably the much more, uh, complex part of the equation, which is originally it was more around the complexity was around the experience. How can I, how can I create an actually a conducive, um, enjoyable experience for a space that sort of doesn't look like a, a hodgepodge of different technologies that are just trying to look cool. Like there's actually some sort of continuity as to how they're being applied. Um, so, but that was the initial big challenge and, and often, you know, you, the term gets used all the time, innovation theater. I mean, often it was just more PR than, 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 than anything, right. It was, especially the, the ones that were, um, specific to one organization, you know, they, there, there's exceptions. I mean, there's some very good ones Microsoft, for instance, has, you know, an excellent one where they, they really have a, you know, a, a large picture of what's going on. Uh, Intel has some as well, and, and and obviously Explorium. I think the first iteration, anyways, of Explorium was really interesting that way. Um, the large horizon stuff, but when it's when it's a a vendor that's sort of focused on EPOS for, and I'm tossing that one. I don't even have a, a brand in mind, but let's, I'm just using that sort of as a. And so the whole experience is, is centered on EPOS. I mean, it's it's it, it loses its novelty pretty quickly, right? So how do you how do you maintain engagement? But like I said, right now the challenges beyond that is 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 all around data sharing and data privacy. That's that's probably the biggest the biggest challenge. Um, as we've become pretty good, I think, at designing experiences, the best the best labs. And I mean, I'm not telling anything you don't already know, but I I, I personally believe the best labs are the ones that you don't know are labs. Like I think that those those for me are the ones that are the most interesting because they they tend to 
you know, I, I prefer technology that's in the back running in the background, that's optimizing, making things better, smoother without me even knowing it's doing that. And that's sort of my vision of a lab as well. Sure. You want to have some cool stuff. You do want to have, you know, there's some, there's some bells and whistles for, for, for you and I, and the people that are, uh, you know, really geek out on this stuff, but for 99% of the other people, they just want, they just want a, you know, a smooth transaction, uh, a personalized experience, a relevant experience. They don't, you know, knowing that it's running on, on seamless RFID powered by uh, predictive analytics doesn't really matter much to them, but to, you know, you and I would, would obviously get pretty excited by those notions, but it's not meant, that's not what the lab is there for. The lab there is, is supposed to be an environment where you interact uh, with with customers in, in, in a setting that's representative of, of reality. And, and that's, that's I think, are the most effective labs. And we're starting to see some, you know, that are, are coming around, but the business model is still a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Now, I'm, I'm kind of assuming that, you know, if, if there are any uh, retailers listening to this episode, they're like, what, uh, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I get that a lot. I get that. I get that a lot. It's like at this at this point, what are you even talking about? Innovation labs, you know, like they can't see five meters or feet yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. in front of them. But like, can we think about? And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, innovation labs are complicated. They're messy. You need to have the the vision and the strategy right, and also pretty expensive. They're yeah, the resources. Say before, maybe even vision and strategy. You almost need the reason. No, the resources are there, the financial and. Yeah. So can we? So do you have any ideas about how to make a cheap version, cheap yet effective, but not cheap, but let's say affordable. effective or affordable? Yes, inexpensive um, lab that gets at the heart of what the lab is supposed to be, but without like, you know, all the overhead. Yeah. So two things, maybe before I even get into that, I'll say what's different about this being different so far about this crisis than the other ones we've seen, obviously this is at a whole other magnitude, but is that often in the past, the first places to get cut were the innovation groups. Uh, that's not to say that they're not being, they're not being pulled back. I mean, at the beginning they weren't because there was all the, most of the reactions for the first month or two were all about, Okay, we got to roll out digital, 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 and who usually was at the core of that were the were the people running the innovation agenda. So they weren't going to tax those people right away. Although now, unfortunately, I'm starting to you know see some the ones that were less commit you know much less committed to it. I think in the first place, you know, now they've gotten around to really downsizing their innovation groups. Unfortunately, and I I, I think that's a, still a mistake. But um, but now the good news is that the majority, or especially the larger organizations, are actually in some cases doubling down. On their innovation groups and 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 looking at you know how can we knowing that this sort of better prepared them for what they're going through right now and how they want to uh, keep make sure they they keep that pace and even and use this as an opportunity to increase the pace actually so that's that's uh, that's sort of before before yeah, you know the that sort of the lays lays the groundwork now in terms of doing it uh, cost effectively I I think in and this is comes back to my previous point uh, of using actual, um, you know, locations that don't seem like labs, meaning an actual operational store, for instance, and, and, um, and, and, you know, making them so they're not just cost centers. So they're actually, they're actually, they're maybe not profitable because there's investments in those spaces that are, that are are above and beyond what a tradition, what a regular space would be for that retailer, let's say, um, or that brand. 
but that they, you know, they're at least it's still it's still a revenue generator. It's not just a pure sort of dark lab that's 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 eating money away while we're pretending to run focus groups through it. You know, who aren't actually buying anything. So, um, and and at McGill, our lab is going to be, you know, that was one of the, this is an organization that's you know pretty practical or pragmatic when it comes to that stuff. Like, hey, no, we still want to make. You know, we're not saying this needs to be necessarily a profitable endeavor, but we don't want it to be a pure money loss either like we need to find some sort of balance um so i think that it works well in that context and i've, I've come around to that because originally that's you know i thought no no a, a pure innovation space needs to be a sandbox it doesn't have the shackles of reality you know sort of tied to it it needs to go unte- untethered and do into you know whatever space mind space it needs to, ge- to generate you can't really create innovation without it um, I've come around a bit to thinking more about in more pragmatic terms around how can you, uh, you know, in, innovate in, in, in circumstances that are more, quite honestly, realistic. I mean, I think oh, that was sort of the challenge of, of, of the, for our first generation of labs was they weren't very realistic. You know, economically, we did a lot of cool shit in them. I mean, don't get me wrong and stuff that was, you know, most of it was ahead of its time and now was going to come in, you know, five years later is going to start making a lot of sense. Um but, you know, I think of, of my friend Kyle Nell. I don't know if you ever met Kyle, but Kyle was running innovation for the innovation group for Lowe's. I mean, he was doing some of the wackiest stuff, man. But, it's you know, it was you know, 3D printing tools and 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 doing, you know, a, a VR, full VR experiments of how to how to lay tile using VR, you know, and that sort of stuff. I mean, five years ago, you know, in the hall room or whatever. Now uh, he's moved on. He's running Singularity now, but or running it, uh, courses at Singularity. But he's all that stuff now is going to be like, okay, that yeah, makes sense now. But unfortunately, and that's what an, originally a innovation group was meant to be. But I think we le- we leapt a little too much into the future sometimes, and we needed to be a little more grounded. And some some business leaders came around and said, you know, uh, you know, this actually has to ROI. Uh, we didn't. We still need to think about our different horizons, but we need to have at least some things we're doing that are going to ROI in the shorter term. And the best place to do that is 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 in an actual um, transactional space. You know, I think that's uh, that's the key. And 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 maybe I'm coming ahead to another question of yours. But one of the the key ingredients that I learned from that is that okay, well, how do you choose that location? You know, that that you're going to you're going to test in. And uh, and a friend of mine who runs innovation, another large retail group here, uh, was telling me, you know, because I said, how do you? He, he mentioned that they, you know, they had several thousand stores, and he says there's 20 stores that we uh, that we you know we basically use all, run our testing. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. How would you choose the 20? Is it like demographics? Is it geographically you know representative sample sizes? You know all the sort of scientific uh, reflexes we have. He's like, no, no, no. It goes <laughs> if we have it, we need a manager of that store that's open to this. And that's our first criteria. <laughs> it's right. having exactly. having having people that don't feel threatened by it are actually excited about it and want to support it and get go yay! You know, you're choosing my store to try this new cool thing out. I'd love it. You know, that's that's number <laughs> that's one right. criteria for running an experiment in a, in, in a store. I was like, you know what? That makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Now, I think you said something very interesting about um, like how do you like stuff that happens in the lab. And how you take it out of the lab, because that's the same shit that we had at the media lab, where you had all these, you know, smart people developing. Oh man, yeah, that's a whole other level, though. I mean, you, yeah, that's you're talking about the MIT lab, right? 
Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it happens like in any lab, right? Stuff needs to, shit needs to get out of the lab. If it doesn't get out of the lab, it's worthless. It's like it didn't ever exist. So I think a lot of these labs that I'm, you know, that I saw, that I'm seeing, um, they don't pay enough attention to how stuff leaves the lab. So like, have you, have you thought about that? Have you like seen some like ways that people do that? I listen, I'm sounding like a broken record now, but I think it's, it's, it's kind of, again, comes back to if you're doing it in an environment that's pretty much representative of an actual, as representative as you can get of an actual store. And, 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 it, and it seems to be improving the metrics that you set out for it to improve. Then, then, yeah, I mean, it, it becomes, then your, then your challenge becomes cultural, becomes around getting people to adopt and buy in and get the rest of the leaders to, to see the value in it. So but at least you've proven it out in a space that is actually conducive versus bringing it to a store manager and the store managers. Yeah, yeah, that worked in that worked in the warehouse behind the, uh, you know, behind behind this head office. But it's, you know, is it really going to work? You know, how's that going to work here? I mean, I don't have that's not my reality. Screens get messy in my environment. I have kids with juice running around, spilling stuff all over, frying. You know these these cool screens you sent me last time, or or you know Wi-Fi is 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 really you know is really spotty in this building, or you know all these things that well in the in the lab it wasn't like that. It was all working perfectly. <laughs> like okay, well. No, I think that's a key takeaway. Like for our listeners, that you if you if you're thinking about building an or using an innovation lab as a strategy to, to move forward or you get yourself out of a certain situation. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Location, location, location. Think about how you put the lab as close as possible to, you know, your customers or where your customers are at. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think there's, you know, the people factors is, is, is the key, is the key one there too. So that location is very much driven by, the people you have in that location and their willingness to adopt to it. And that's, you know, something we've come around to because I was in, I was again, firmly in the, the other camp originally thinking, no, an innovation space needs to be almost like this. this we you remember innovation groups started from skunk works, right? What were skunk works? They were, we were told that the only way innovation would start, you know, Lockheed Martin had said, we need to, make sure this group doesn't come in contact at all with our regular people because they're just going to get all the reasons why it won't work while they won't be able to build the blackbird uh and and that was sort of the, do the doctrine of innovation and in some spaces i'm sure it is um the the place where i'm struggling a bit uh right now with the model that i'm sort of more interested in this more realistic real reality-based model is i still think there's really good innovation that comes out of a cross-pollinizing um, you know, industries or stakeholders. And that was one of the big motivations I had originally for the, you know, the standalone sandbox was it was easier to pull in like a bunch of different people together that usually wouldn't interact and sort of create that magic, uh, you know, the pixie dust. Um, and I still, I still like that premise. I still think there's, you know, a lot of the most, a lot of the interesting innovation comes from the un, you know, unexpected. And it, so you, there has to maybe be an opportunity and maybe there, that's sort of a V2 of thinking, okay, who, how could we cross-pollinate innovation? So if I'm working, let's say, in a convenience environment, who could I invite in here that would be sort of unusual in this environment, but that could probably create some interesting, is it an automotive or a pharmaceutical or is it a, a chemical or, you know, something like 
diff- very different. It's not not necessarily usually tied to this to see what kind of ideas they come up with, but that that won't happen and that won't have, be happening in, in V1s. But I'm a, I'm a fan of cross pollination when it comes to, to sort of generating innovative ideas. So that that's the next challenge. How do you do that in a real in a realistic environment? So absolutely, absolutely. I want to I want to before we wrap up, I want to touch on like one last thing that you mentioned kind of in passing about the people in the trenches getting fired, those innovation managers, those innovation professionals. How do we help them get out of this situation or? Yeah, well, I think that's more I mean, I don't I mean, the people I know, I don't know about you, but the people I know that are good in this space, I mean, they're never lacking. I mean, it's sort of part of the it's sort of part of the trajectory. And, you know, in some cases, this is like a breathing space for them finally, because they've been on a mad, a mad dash up to this point. And, and, and there'll be, uh, there'll be opportunities to, 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 to get into to new endeavors again, but, you know, per, fairly quickly. Um, I'll broaden it out beyond just the innovation. I mean, I think the interesting thing right now is, and I've been telling this, especially to, to senior executives, there's been a lot of turnover in senior executive roles in, in, in retail for the last, especially like two, three years, as people, as organizations sort of want fresh new thinking to come in. And, and I always encourage them to look um, sort of on the other side of the fence. So if you're a retail, if you're a VP of merchandising, how could you go work for a technology company and help that technology company understand the merchandiser's needs, you know? And that's sort of sort of the vice versa too. I think the I think the honestly I think the innovation person's in a better place right now where if if the the, the retailer or whatever wants to wants to get a little more of that that, that uh, DNA in them that they sort of you know fast iterative uh uh, startup innovation slash whatever buzzword agile you know everything else you want to use uh, mindset you know then then the, that innovation innovation expert probably has a lot of opportunities to go in any organization you know right now from banking to uh, to manufacturing to you know in all in all sorts of in all sorts of directions um, the one place if they do have time and they want to shore up some specific skills. I really think that, you know, this is not new, but and, and even maybe sounds old at this stage, but anything to do around uh, making sure that their data, uh, their data skills are top notch, that they understand, especially the, the shortfalls and the, the, uh, the blind spots of data, and if they can become experts at recognizing that and then applying it within this, again, I'll say it, the privacy uh, paradox is, is, you know, understanding what those rules are, how that's moving. I think they, they will serve organizations really well if they come in and say, I know how to, you know, I have a, a track record of helping organizations innovate, but I also understand the shortcomings of them and where the, you know, where, where, where especially the, the data falls short. Uh, before we wrap up, if people want to learn more about you, what you do, maybe get in touch, what's the best way to do that? I, I always like LinkedIn. I mean, I'm pretty easy to find Carl Boutte, uh, Carl with a C, B-O-U-T-E-T on LinkedIn. Uh, and uh, if not, I'm pretty much on every other social platform, but that's the one I, I encourage people to reach out to me on. And uh, yeah, I mean, there is a, you can find me tied to the, to, to the McGill work. And also I took on a new responsibility just recently, uh, managing uh, a, our Quebec or the province I live in in Canada's uh, commercial innovation center too. So we've, there's going to be a lot of places to find me. Nice, nice. That's great. So I will link your LinkedIn profile in the oh, show notes. There we go. Now that's innovation. <laughs> that's innovation. Um, thank you so much, Carl, for being on the show. Thank you so much, Anya. So I really enjoyed it.